I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Bob Woodward, associate editor at The Washington Post, where he's now been for almost 50 years since he and Carl Bernstein broke open the Watergate investigation that led to President Nixon's resignation. In this conversation, Bob gave his perspective on the 2020 election two weeks after it was over. We did a virtual interview as a program for a large audience in Dallas on November 18th. Enjoy. It's my great privilege to introduce Bob Woodward. Bob and I first crossed paths four years ago, one week after the 2016 presidential election, when we did a program at the for the Dallas Bar Foundation one evening and the next day at lunch for the World Affairs Council. Uh, he is a household name. He's currently uh, the associate editor at the Washington Post. He's been at the Post since 1971, which means next year will be your 50-year anniversary, Bob. Uh, Bob is the author of 19 books, 13 of which have been national bestsellers. Uh, Bob Bob Schieffer said of him, Bob Woodward has established himself as the best reporter of our time and maybe the best reporter of all time. And Robert Gates said that Bob Woodward has an extraordinary ability to get otherwise responsible adults to spill their guts to him. I wish I'd recruited him to the CIA. So, Bob, welcome to the uh, Turtle Creek uh, Breakfast Club in Dallas, and uh, we're glad you you have an hour that we can spend with you. Thank you. All right, Bob, uh, we are focusing today on your thoughts on this uh, recent election. Uh, As we look at the 2020 election results, as in the 2016 election, the leading pollsters' predictions that Biden would win by double digits were obviously wrong. So going forward, given their unreliability in 2016 and they're not improving in 2020, what do you see as the future use of polls in presidential politics? I've never liked polls and and never believed them or trusted them. I I think the job of somebody like myself uh, is to be a reporter and write and find out what people are doing, what their actions are, either openly or in a hidden way. And, and, you know, what's hidden, everyone has their secrets and often those secrets are important. So uh, the the polling for me is just noise out there. And in 2016, in fact, I was down in Texas during uh, the campaign and spoke to one of the business groups down there, uh, and there were 300 people there. And it wasn't a business group, it was one company. And uh, I then asked, okay, how many people of you 300 are going to vote for Hillary? And 20 people raised their hand. I said, how many people are going to vote for Trump? 200 people raised their hand and the CEO came over and sat down and and just said, look, I've worked with these people for a year. Uh, If you told me that 200 of them said they were going to vote for Trump, I wouldn't believe it. So I went back realizing there was lots of hidden Trump, uh, many hidden Trump voters, not just in Texas, but everywhere. And so I said, on television, in fact, on Fox News, that there was good chance Trump would win and people laughed at me. So, you know, it it proves the lesson, get out and talk to people. But uh, my poll, I trusted, but I don't trust the pollsters who call people on the phone. Now, it appears that President Trump might have won if the public's perception of his handling of the pandemic had been more favorable. Uh, This subject was an important theme in your new best-selling book, Rage, that came out on September the 15th. 
And yes, in COVID's early days, as your book pointed out, Donald Trump was intentionally not forthcoming about the dangers of the pandemic. And yes, his failure and his sometimes his refusal to wear a mask was foolish. But what's your assessment of his actual handling of the pandemic? Uh, I think it's I think it has been uh, indefensible. I think what he's done on the pandemic in February, he told me in one of our interviews, he said, look, oh, it it's airborne. Uh, it's five times worse than the flu. And of course, publicly, he was saying, oh, it's going to go away. It took me three to four months to find out what Trump was talking about in February. And uh, in reporting, it sometimes sometimes uh, takes months to dig things out. And there was a January 28th meeting, top secret meeting in the Oval Office, which I got the details from from participants. And in that meeting, Robert O'Brien, Trump's national security advisor, told the president the virus is going to be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Imagine if those of you who are in business uh, and you had somebody come in who's one of your most trusted advisors saying that something going on is going to be the biggest threat to your survival as a business. And then it was laid out uh, for Trump exactly how the virus uh, was coming. It was very much like what had uh, happened in uh, 1918, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic and uh, that it really was a catastrophe coming and Trump put some restrictions on China, but he was never, and this is the fatal part of this, he was never honest with the public, even to this day, never saying we have this giant threat. Well, uh, I understand that uh, he has not been forthcoming and has misrepresented the situation. (laughs) But in terms of the actual uh, efforts to develop a vaccine, the decisions about shutting down, not shutting down, uh, that kind of thing. Do you you have an opinion as to what he actually did in response to the to to attempt to uh, bring a, a, a reduction in the seriousness of the pandemic as opposed to uh, his mishandling of his public statements and that kind of thing. Well, in, in mishandling of the public statements is not, is only part of the problem. He, he did not, I mean, there's what's called the duty to warn when you're president to tell the public uh, after Pearl Harbor was bombed in 1949, uh, 1941, uh, president, Roosevelt went to the public in a fireside chat and said, we've been hit hard. It's a disaster. The survival of our country hinges on how we respond to this surprise attack and immobilize the country. Trump did the opposite, kept saying it's going to go away, told me in March after the pandemic had exploded. I said, why haven't you done something about this? And these were all on the record recorded interviews, which we've uh, played and released. And Trump said, oh, I always downplay it because I don't want to create the panic. Well, (laughs) the American people, I think it can be said from history, uh, don't panic if they're told the truth. And uh, he could have done things like Uh, in his State of the Union address uh, five or six days after he learned the dimensions of what was coming from authoritative medical sources in China through his deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, who had been a uh, reporter for the Wall Street Journal in China for seven years and knew the Chinese lie about things like this. And he had doctors in China and Hong Kong saying, look, this is going to be a disaster. And Trump could have acted, 
could have told the American public, we now know, wash your hands, avoid uh, large crowds in closed rooms, uh, keep social distance and wear a mask. Suppose he'd said that in February to people. I've been warned on this. Uh, it's coming. Let's start a mitigation preventive mitigation efforts. These are not, this would not be an imposition on uh, many people. It's something that could have been done uh, if there was mask wearing now, uh, which there isn't, there should be a national order on this. Uh, it's, uh, look, this, in, in my view, as somebody who's done nine presidents, this is going to be a monumental stain on the Trump presidency. Uh, to this day, he still kisses it off. What a tragedy for him. What a tragedy for the country. What a tragedy for the you know, families who've had a quarter of a million people die. Yesterday, 1,500 people died of this virus. That's half almost half the number who died in the 9-11 terrorist attacks that changed the country. All right. Uh, well, uh, let's, let's move on to uh, an, another controversial topic. I'm sure you and your colleagues at the Washington Post often hear about uh, accusations of media bias, uh, especially in election years. And in that regard, uh, what is your perception of the amount of investigative reporting that's going on at the Washington Post regarding possible voter fraud? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at it, but uh, as you know, there's no real significant evidence that anyone has come forward with. I've talked to a couple of people about it, who Republicans who've made these allegations say, where should we send people? Pennsylvania, what town, what should we do here? And uh, as has been said, uh, there needs to be evidence. But I also agree it's important to investigate something like this. Trump and others have made accusations, uh, and there is a kind of blanket denial in the media, oh, no, this is false, this is not true. Uh, you can't say without doing the work. And uh, I would say uh, more of an effort should be made in the media. I know some is being made. I know I've talked to people. I've said, and it, it's like, uh, I hate to bring this up. You're all in Dallas, right? Or most of you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hate to bring this up, but it's like the Kennedy assassination for years, I'd get calls from people saying there's a conspiracy and so forth. And I would say, OK, tell me who did it other than Lee Harvey Oswald. And no one ever surfaced any evidence or even a name of who else might have been involved. So you ask, uh, but you raise, a, you raise an important point, and it looks like to lots of people I, I think, a bias. And uh, we need to be very clear that we're trying to be straight about it. Was it your perception, for example, that the Washington Post was, had the same level of fervor in investigating the business dealings of Hunter Biden as opposed to the business dealings of the Trump family? Um, there's been some effort on it. Uh, in my view, never enough. Uh, we now have a uh, president-elect and their allegations about his son and uh, misdealing, uh, illegal dealing, whatever it is, and it needs to be examined. But, you, you know, you're hitting on a sore point. And when you hit on soft tissue like that, we instead of being defensive about it, uh, the answer always is to go to work and do the reporting and the investigating. Are you satisfied that the Washington Post is, in fact, focused on that investigative responsibility as far as the Hunter Biden allegations are concerned? Yes, um, I'm always because 
of that issue of it looks like we're not taking it seriously. We have to double or triple our effort. Okay. Now, another uh, hot topic in the midst of this election that uh, where the president has still not conceded is the subject of mail-in voting <clears throat> and uh, the fact that different states had different rules for mail-in balance that created major controversy and is largely responsible for the disputed election. So do you believe Congress should enact federal legislation so that in future elections there will be uniformity in how voting is handled? Well, I, I think the Constitution makes it pretty clear that it's up to the states to do the um, set the rules and laws for how the voting is done in their state. So I guess you could uh, amend uh, the Constitution on that issue. But uh, look, this this guy that Trump fired, a cybersecurity expert from Homeland Security, re released they released a report and said it's the most secure election in history. Now, that needs to be questioned and look at evidence, but uh, people will say things. And I said, you know, just tell me where in Pennsylvania, where in Georgia, where in Arizona or Nevada, how do you get to this? And what uh, happens in my business is you will get uh, whistleblowers. People, if they know some something's going on that's wrong, they'll call or they'll email. And I've received, no, I am a, a kind of an open book. My telephone number is available to anyone in the Washington uh, phone book or anywhere in the world. And sometimes people will call me from Abu Dhabi and uh, there's a big time difference. And so I get awakened, but I think I have to be open to that. And sometimes you get calls with good information and would uh, would love to hear information about this, but I haven't seen it. And the people, the Republican senators who've made these, I've asked them outright, I said, who, you know, send me who did it. Uh, give me some numbers. Give me a place in these states. It's blank at this point. That doesn't mean there isn't something there. Well, if Trump continues to stoke the narrative that the election was stolen from him and refuses to concede, what do you see as the long-term impact on the electoral process? Well, I don't know whether it's gonna have a long-term impact, but I, I, being a prisoner of Watergate, uh, I remember back in the 70s, Senator Sam Irvin, who was chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee, you remember back that far? Uh, people asked Irvin, well, what was Watergate? And he made the point, it was an effort to destroy the integrity of the process of nominating and electing a president. In other words, Nixon spied on and sabotaged the Democrats so he could get George McGovern a weaker candidate to run against. Uh, when it looked like it was going to come out, they paid hush money to the conspirators involved in Watergate and so forth. And so there were those crimes. But the electoral process also includes after the election, that period between now November 3rd and January 20th. And this, there is an expectation uh, a reasonable expectation that once the votes are counted, that there is going to not only be a peaceful, but a, a, in, a, in a way, I mean, look, you look at the other examples of this, uh, uh, where people have conceded very generously, very honorably, and uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it was John McCain when he conceded to Obama in 2008. Uh, McCain said very graciously, I mean, it's a wonderful reflection of uh, McCain's honor, quite frankly. And he said, we never hide from history. Well, 
Trump is hiding from history. He's trying to bury history. That doesn't do, it isn't going to work. It doesn't do him any good. Uh, all these stories about he's, you know, he's brooding. He's in the white, locked up in the White House, calling people, making all kinds of accusations. I'm, I got to know him this year. I spent nine hours interviewing him. Uh, you really get to know somebody. He would call at random here at night or on the weekends. I had a number where I could get in touch with him immediately. And uh, he, I think he's, he, he denies things that he doesn't like and he just powers over them. He makes impulsive decisions but he's doing damage to the country. He's doing damage to himself. He's doing damage to uh, the, the effort to deal with the pandemic. I mean, that's that's issue number one. And we've kind of all become numb about it. I, that's astonishing. In the nine hours that you interviewed him, is there one thing that stands out in your mind as being especially surprising about him that you didn't know before? Well, I would. I did ask him after uh, May 25th when George Floyd was killed by the police in Minneapolis uh, and the B Black Lives Matter movement erupted and grew, and uh, I asked him, I said, President Trump, don't you think that people like him and myself who are beneficiaries, white privilege, we need to make an effort to understand the anger and pain that black people feel in this country? And we've played the tape of this. And he just, Trump mocked me and said, oh, Bob, you drank the Kool-Aid. You know, I don't feel that way at all. Now, I, I was shocked, quite frankly, that a president of the United States would not automatically, instinctively protect himself and be doing things and talking about understanding the anger and pain of black people. That's part of the president's job uh, of black people, of everyone in the country, and that he would mock me uh, shows a level of uh, detachment that can only be just described as shocking. And again, a man not rooted in what's going on in the country that he is leading. Hmm. Now, going back to the election, uh, the Democratic Party uh, spent billions of dollars in hopes of flipping state houses, flipping the U.S. Senate, and widening their gap in the U.S. House. And despite a massive increase in voter turnout, uh, it turned out that, quote, money is not destiny. So after the party political leaders process these facts, how do you think it's going to affect their campaign strategy in future elections? Yeah, I think they got a lot of work to do and a lot of meetings and a lot of head scratching. And uh, if you if you think about it, what is it now? 72, 73 million people voted for Trump. Uh, given the controversy about him as president, uh, for somebody to vote for him is not just a casual vote. Oh, I'll vote for uh, the Republican. And uh, Biden, got, Biden got 3 million, 4 million more votes and has won, but it was close. And uh, I had long discussions with President Trump in the course of working on the book Rage about what happened in 2016. And uh, I cited um, examples of in history where uh, the old order is supplanted and that in 2016, the Republican establishment, the Democratic establishment did not really know what was going on. And uh, 
Trump seized history's clock, as it's called, and, I, and Trump agreed completely that he had done this, that he tuned in to, uh, if you will, the anger and pain and distress people felt about uh, the system in the United States, uh, the economy, the political system, the elites, uh, alleged elites, if I may say that. And people are, are, were in 2016 and now are still furious about that. But I think, uh, quite frankly, Biden beat him because of Trump's handling of the pandemic. I think that that is, uh, it's coupled with the problem in the economy, which we clearly have. And there are tens of millions of people in this country who are living a nightmare, who've lost jobs, do not have money. Uh, the Congress has failed miserably to deal with this recently. And as has been pointed out at the end of the year, a lot of the protective benefits are going to expire. So we're going to be in trouble. Congress has got to get uh, going on this and the Democrats like to say it's the Republicans' fault. Actually, there was an editorial in my newspaper this morning saying, you know, maybe the Democrats should go along with uh, half of what they want uh, that the Republicans are willing to vote for. So, you know, you got to compromise. And there's the Democrats, from my reading, have not been very compromising on this. Well, in 2018, there was a blue wave where the Democrats picked up 41 House seats and seven governorships. And yet in 2020, there was no blue wave. Uh, what's your explanation for that shift? Out of touch. People being out of touch. Not that the old order in the Democratic Party. I mean, look at Biden. Biden is old order. And uh, he represents, uh, as Trump was always saying, you know, been around in Washington for 47 years. That is a long time. And uh, he, the Democratic Party has got to figure out uh, what the new order is. I would argue the Republican Party has got to do that also, uh, that they have to take some of these ideas that Trump had and perhaps use them, but say, uh, what's the real plan to help the worker, to help people in this country? And I, I, so what do we have? Disarray in both parties in a, to an extent that I think has not been acknowledged. Well, along those lines, uh, Bill Maher recently said that the Democratic Party's progressive wing appears to operate with a mindset of, quote, woke BS and has and the progressive wing has views that are not rooted in common sense to a huge swath of Americans. Do you agree with Bill Maher on those? Yeah, I, th I think that's I think that's true, that people don't want uh, the government to take over everything. I think some of the some of the conservative principles that Trump operated on uh, are are very appealing, even, even to Democrats, not just Republicans. At the same time, on the issue of the pandemic, race relations, and uh, really addressing the economy, uh, Trump failed, and those those are the issues that are going to be before the country. Uh, they are right on our plate right now, and they're being ignored. Now, one of the bright spots for the Republican Party in the 2020 election was they're getting a higher percentage of the Latino vote, especially in Florida and Texas border towns. What do you think caused that shift? Well, I think people... People tend to vote their interest, and they may misperceive what their interest is, but I think that's what happened in this, this case. Uh, there, there is, people want, and clearly in 2016, and the 72 million people who voted for Trump want things shaken up. They're not 
happy with the system we have. And both Republicans and Democrats are, are going to have to figure out what that is. Well, assuming one of the two Georgia Senate runoffs in January is won by a Republican, then for the next two years at least, the Republicans will continue to control the Senate. So can you identify areas of legislation where you think President Trump and a Republican Senate are likely to collaborate? Well, there's there's not a lot of collaboration there, but uh, Biden and McConnell know each other. They've been in the Senate 25 years to get uh, 25 years uh, that overlapped with both of their times in the Senate. I uh, did two books on Obama and did a lot of reporting on Biden, got to know Biden and his operation. And Biden, if, if you look, just Google uh, February 11th, 2011, uh, Google Biden and McConnell. Biden went down to McConnell's, the Ma McConnell Institute at the University of Louisville and gave a speech. I mean, you should look at it because there's Biden saying, you know, the Republicans and De Democrats in the Senate, uh, in the Senate, and we like each other. We really do. And you can see McConnell in the back nodding up and down. So are they going to work together uh, and work out the traditional Senate compromise? One yeah. for you, yeah. one for me. Uh, we're going to see. Yeah. Well, are you, are you, given Biden's history with that, uh, are you confident that he, in fact, will be able to have sway over uh, the more progressive side? Let me say, everybody, please mute your screen so that uh, we don't have this interference, please. But, Bob, are you confident, knowing you've known Biden for 47 years at least, uh, that he will uh, be able to uh, retain control over the more progressive side of his party? Not confident of anything, <laughs> and I don't think anyone should be. Um, he's going to be he's going to be pulled in that direction. But he's the president. And if there's one thing I've learned in almost 50 years of reporting on presidents from Nixon to Trump, it is that the concentration of power in the presidency is astonishing. The Constitution says, Article 2, the executive branch is the president of the United States. He can appoint people to do various parts of it, but he is in control of the executive branch. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to see. It, it, it's going to require the best in Biden and the best in McConnell, if that's the outcome in the Senate, and that looks like the way it is. Uh, Talmadge, you, you were asking about the media. Can I tell a, a story that... Um, may be relevant because a lot of it has to do with attitude uh, of you see reporters on television and that there is a kind of smugness and self-confidence and you know this is the way it is and it's uh, Sean Hannity on Fox and it's uh, reporters on, uh, on the other side on MSNBC or CNN. After Nixon resigned so it was um, 1974, Catherine Graham, who was the owner and publisher of the Washington Post, who had supported the publication of our stories, Carl Bernstein's and mine, uh, wrote a letter to Carl and myself, and it was just on a yellow legal pad paper. Uh, not, I think she probably had more stationery than anyone in Washington, but she sent this because it obviously came into her mind when there was only a yellow legal pad at hand. And it said, Dear Carl and Bob, uh, now you did some of the stories and Nixon's resigned. Uh, don't start thinking too highly of yourselves. And let me give you some advice. 
And she said, my advice to you is beware the demon pomposity. And pomposity stalks the halls of the media, business, politics, you name it. There's too much pomposity, too much. And and what, what she was saying is not only the exterior manner in which you present yourself, but it's the sense of we are really honest brokers. We're trying to find out what happened. Uh, people who are, we know who are successful in business are people who are open, don't kind of wave themselves around as, as the gods, the all-knowing gods. And uh, that's a really important lesson for the media, for me, for anyone in too much pomposity, too much, ah, this is the way it is. And um, whenever I hear somebody talk with self-confidence, I immediately rear back and start doubting, not I start having second and third orders of doubt even. Yeah, I'm reading a wonderful new biography of Abraham Lincoln, a man named Reynolds, and it talks about Lincoln, of course, in these small towns for entertainment, they would have debating societies where you would have to take both sides of an issue. And those of us who debated in high school and college know that's the way debating goes. And that uh, exercise of, of being required to see both sides of an issue is is so broadening. And yet people who haven't had that exercise, as you say, it just goes one way. They see it one way. They don't consider the other side. Yeah, and it's a, it's a giant mistake. I remember... Uh, years ago in the 70s, uh, working on a book on the Supreme Court called The Brethren, when it came out in 1979, so that's 40 years ago. And I was working on it, and I uh, thought, well, uh, gee, let's, uh, I'll call the justices on the phone. So I called Justice Lewis Powell, who I'd never met, and said, you know, we're looking at how decision-making works in the Supreme Court. I'd like to talk to you. And he said, oh, okay, great. Love to do it. And I said, "Uh, when, sir? And he said, "Uh, how about right now? And I I was in my pajamas. It was early in the morning. I said, I'll be there in a half hour. And I will never forget going to his chambers at the Supreme Court. And I I did not know much about the Supreme Court. We were starting this uh, examination reporting effort. And I said, how do you make decisions? And he said, oh, I have a very specific way. If I'm assigned to write an opinion or the cases that come before me, I have to vote one way or the other. But particularly if I'm assigned to write an opinion, I have one clerk, I look at it and read the briefs, think about it, and I'm going to vote this way. And then I take another clerk and I say, okay, you do all the research on how I should vote the other way. And he said, and even in my opinions, I will put in, I'll say, you know, this is how I think, this is my reasoning. And then I will address the strongest arguments on the other side. And so I started looking at his opinions and it was like a decoder ring of, ah, this is the way he works. And we put it in the book, and then some of the scholars in the law journals came by. They'd never noticed this. They'd never talked to Powell and realized this is his mode of making an ultimate decision. And as he pointed out, sometimes the clerk on the other side was so persuasive, he would switch his phone. Yeah, in fact, I think George Washington did that. He'd get written reports from Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton before he'd make a decision. Uh, Let me encourage the group, if you have a question of Bob, to hit raise your hand, and then Bob Whiteman, I will uh, ask you to call on people. But, Bob, uh, moving away from the election a little bit, just to your history, 
Uh, I'd like you to compare the internal process of making major decisions as among Presidents Bush 43, Obama, and Trump, our last three presidents, about how they, your perception of the process by which each of them made decisions. Uh, that, that's a great question. And uh, in the case of George W. Bush, I, in his eight years, I did four books on him about his wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it was a pretty open decision-making process. Uh, and I think he got the Afghanistan war right. I think if Gore had been president, we would have gone into Afghanistan after the nine 11 terrorist attacks, which were organized and mastermind in Afghanistan uh, by uh, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Uh, I think uh, in the, the case of Obama, uh, he had a, a now in the just to go back to Bush, I think it worked on Afghanistan, some other issues on the Iraq war. It didn't. Uh, the CIA Director George Tenet, in an Oval Office meeting, which I reported at length, said to the president that the intelligence that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction is a slam dunk. And it was George Bush who was skeptical and said, well, let's examine this and so forth. And I think they bought the argument. And uh, I think I bought the argument and I fault myself mightily for not being more skeptical about WMD in Iraq, which was the main reason for launching the war. Uh, Obama had pretty good uh, decision-making process, but I think he got pressured by the military to send more troops to Afghanistan than Obama actually wanted. And I think on the budget negotiations, Obama didn't quite figure out how to work his will. A president, a leader needs to say, okay, these are the buttons on the consoles of people in my party and in the other party and other interests uh, that I need to push and understand to get there. I don't think Obama did that enough. Uh, Trump's decision-making is a roulette wheel, almost. You never know what number's going to come up, and he will, like he fired the defense secretary uh, by tweet the other day. I mean, think of that. I mean, what a, what a thing to do. You've asked somebody to serve their country in probably the most sensitive position other than being president, frankly and defending our country, and you don't like something he's done, so you terminate him by tweet. I mean, that's, uh, that's unconscionable. Uh, you've had people work for you. Would you treat anybody like that? You know, hopefully not. Hopefully people won't do that, but Trump does. Uh, another question kind of from a historical standpoint with your knowledge of non-presidents, Compare and contrast Presidents Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. Yeah, as I was saying earlier, uh, Nixon, uh, his plan, which he executed, was to tamper with the electoral system and its integrity to spy on and sabotage other Democrats so he would run against the best, the best candidate for him, not for the country or for the party, the other party, the Democratic Party. Uh, and Nixon was criminal, provable from his tapes and the testimony. Uh, in, the, in the case of Trump, no one has found a crime he committed. And the Mueller investigation, the impeachment uh, kind of fizzled, quite frankly, and uh, to commit a crime normally, you have to premeditate, right? Plan. Trump doesn't plan. <laughs> he doesn't organize. And uh, that's uh, very much to, uh, he is not getting the best data and advice from the people in the White House and from his cabinet. He is just 
he's moved away from them and moved totally to what he wants. Uh, my friend, uh, Lad Hirsch, who's on the call, uh, is asking, what do you see as Trump's exit plan? Do you think he'll attend the inauguration? <clears throat> do you think he'll run again in 2024? Um, I wish I had a crystal ball. Those are good questions, but you know, people always want to know the future. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure Trump has an exit plan. I think it will be by the seat of his pants, whatever comes up and whatever the weight is on the other side. And the idea of him running in 2024, possible. Uh, the idea that he ran in 2016 was a surprise to people. Uh, so uh, let's stand by. But, but my approach is I don't think we know enough about what happened in the past and that we people in my business need to look in the past and can't really significantly predict the future, uh, particularly with somebody like Trump. I think he's I think he's waiting out. I think he's kind of testing the waters uh, or at least it is having that impact. I think there's no certain course. OK, Bob, now, do you want to open it up? Yeah, Bob Genovine has a question. Bob, go ahead. Mr. Wimmer, thank you for your time. Um, you uh, you were asked about what your paper was doing to investigate the affairs of Hunter Biden and. You, you didn't make any mention of Joe Biden's involvement in those business affairs. I'd like to know specifically what is your newspaper doing? Okay, I just I'm not has anybody called uh, Hunter Biden? Have you called uh, the shop owner? Have you talked to the FBI? I mean, it, it seems like the facts are not hard to uncover. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I personally have not. Uh, there are people at the Washington Post working on it. But um, I, you know, I agree with your your grievance and your tone. Uh, well, why don't we look at these things? And I think we've got to be very aggressive. And uh, I, I personally have uh, not. And maybe you're going to inspire me to start making some calls this afternoon. I would certainly appreciate that. I think a lot of Americans would. I've got a question. Uh, it it uh, looks like maybe re, maybe Trump has remade reshaped the uh, Republican Party. He's brought a lot of blue collar workers in. Is that something that is likely to persist in the future, or were the blue collar folks attracted to him just because of uh, his the way he talked, the way he act acted? And it does seem that the truth is uh, his policies helped them a lot I mean, with wages up and, and so forth, as, as you well know. Well, what, yes. What, go ahead. I'm sorry, sir. He, he has, however, uh, alienated uh, an intellectual wing of the Republican Party. Uh, can somebody bring all that together and, and create a party that is uh, a majority party? Yeah, well, that's an interest, a, a very important question, and it's got to be uh, inclusive. What they call the big tent approach, and uh, uh, can somebody do that? I I don't know. I'm, I don't see anyone on the horizon yet. But who saw Trump on the horizon? Uh, so, uh, but you know, you're exactly right, and this. If if I, I'm not sure what my next book is going to be, but there is a book to be done that's just entitled The 72 Million or 73 Million. Who are these people who voted for Trump? Uh, clearly, a lot of them blue collar workers. Uh, and uh, I would go to a factory town in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Ohio and really live there for a while and try to figure out what is really, really going on in the lives of the people who work in some of these factories, what some of these blue collar towns. Uh, I also, if I were 30 years old, uh, I would 
pack my bags and I'd go to Georgia and report on those Senate races down there because that's going to be a big, big factor in how the government works or how it doesn't work or how we return to, to gridlock. So what you're hearing me saying is I wish I was 30 years old. <laughs> Bob, I have a question for you. You, you mentioned earlier uh, 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 just kind of a glancing blow, but, but it, was, it, struck, it struck me that you mentioned a criticism of Trump's handling of the economy. And, yes. uh, and please elaborate on that, because I suspect there are a number of people on this call, myself included, that, that don't, uh, don't get where that criticism comes from in the light of, of a pandemic which shut down the economy and the $4 trillion of money that was spent to try to keep it cropped up. So tell me where you think he erred. Um, and in the last call I had with Trump, which was August 14th, he called and asked if I could get something in the book and the book was done. And he said, so are you writing about the pandemic a lot? And I said, yes, indeed I am. And he said, well, how about the economy? Are you writing about the economy? And I said, yes, but they're related, the pandemic and the economy. And, and, and he said, Trump said, a little bit. And I reared back and said, a little bit. They're totally related. And if he had handled the pandemic in a, an aggressive way, we would not have had these serious uh, economic problems. And this idea that the pandemic came and uh, as Trump calls it, uh, he was always, always telling me it was a plague. Uh, yes, but there are mitigation actions that could be taken that would control the pandemic, which would help the economy. And Trump goes out and talks about, oh, the economy was great before the pandemic, and it is going to be great. Later on, this is during the campaign, he was making this argument. Well, uh, look at those charts. Yes, uh, the economy has gone up uh, recently, uh, but it's still below what it was when Trump started. And a president, a leader, can't just say, well, I'm going to address one issue uh, they're all related. They converge on each other and nothing converges more dramatically than the pandemic and the economy. Do you see the point? Oh, I, I, absolutely. But, I, but I'm curious as to what specifically you believe that he should have done uh, in uh, whatever time frame that you think he should have done it that would have changed the trajectory of both the pandemic and the economy. Well, with the pandemic, he, he should have been honest and told people in February that he was warned. He, he should have uh, laid out some of the mitigation factors. There are lots of experts uh, and doctors have said if we just started wearing masks in February, that this would have alleviated the problem very, very significantly. It turns out when you look at this, Trump declared war on the doctors. Anthony Fauci, I know Fauci, and Fauci was, and I have in my book exactly how Fauci was trying to get Trump to do more and to be proactive. Trump failed to do that. And that's what's hurt the economy. You can't sit around and say, well, it was once great and it was great, but or at least good. But um, it's it's a disaster now for people. Look at the how about the restaurants in Dallas? Are they teeming and thriving? No, but the, but the issue becomes becomes how, how much should he have? Do you believe he should have shut down the economy? in February and March, because one of the things that I recall, and I can't quote it, but, but I recall the early uh, uh, coverage of the pandemic 
created some astronomical numbers of the numbers of infections and the number of deaths. It put the deaths, I, I want to say, in excess of 30 or 40 million people. And it just it was it was just a, a awesome kind of numbers. And those were real early on. And in the, 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 the big events, the New York, um, in, in uh, New Orleans, and in California, big event, big public events were happened, and then the virus got into a big rage, and um, and there was, but that was all in February and March, uh, and then when the when the individual states began to shut things down as a way to try to gain control, um, which was clearly the style that that seemed to be the one that everybody took, that everybody gets to decide on their own what they do, um, it, it it mitigated a lot of that clearly. Uh, but I'm not I'm not so sure that absence um, uh, somebody shutting down the whole economy uh, more so than it already did that it would have made a difference. See, the, the, the idea that shutting down the economy is the remedy is wrong. Look at South Korea. I was just talking uh, by uh, virtual communication with a bunch of uh, South Korean newspaper people, you know. Uh, South Korea has about one-sixth the population of the United States. You know how many people have died from the pandemic in South Korea? No. 400. 400. We've had 250,000 people die. And cases, you know, um, in the what now it's 11 million and so forth. And then you look at what South Korea did. They uh, took actions mitigate. I mean, you see, uh, even over the years, you see videos of people in Asia. They all wear masks. A mask is uh, is not a miracle cure, but it helps. And so Trump's failure on the pandemic created the economic nightmare that many people are feeling in this country. Any other questions? Well, Bob, we're right about 8.30. We can't Mark, thank you Mark, enough. Oh, you Mark, got one more? Mark, yeah. do you have a question? Yes. Sure. Bob, can you comment on what we hear repeatedly is independent uh, studies that both the print and electronic media uh, carry negative coverage for uh, for President Trump of 90%, on the order of 90, 95%. We hear this repeatedly. Where, where do you hear it? Where do you hear that? I hear, uh, where do I, I, I can't quote my sources, but it's been, re I repeatedly hear this over the past three years. What What is your view of that? That, that this is, uh, you, WAPO and, and your, and, you know, and the, your uh, the colleague in New York, uh, New York Times, and all electronic media, C CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, uh, ABC, CBS, you know, that there is a, neg a negative coverage of the president on the order of somewhere around 95%. I've consistently heard this. I can't source this, but I think everyone here would agree with that's what we hear, negative reporting of the president. What are your thoughts if... If there's any validity to that, what what are your thoughts? On well, I don't know the, the numbers. I know there is tough reporting on the president. There's always been tough reporting on presidents. That's part of our job. But as I was saying earlier, I think we need to uh, get off the pomposity track and not seem like we uh, know things that we don't and be much more even-handed in our tone in coverage at the same time. Uh, what Trump has done, I'm sorry to return to this, you, you can't avoid what he's done on the pandemic. When the histories of this era are written that our grandchildren might read, it's going to begin with that January 28th meeting, which I have details on. I asked Trump about it and he said, yes, it happened. Uh, the national security advisor to the president, September 9th, was on Fox News and Brett Baird. But, Bear. Bob, but yes. Bob, I don't mean to interrupt you, but he was president for three years prior to the pandemic. You know, the 
two years of Russian collusion accusation, just nonstop. He is a, you know, a tool of the Russians and it, it was found to be invalid. This is what I mean. All, all, you know, uh, electronic and, and print media just constantly. He is a tool of the Russians. And that played out for two years. Yeah. But let's look at that and stop talking about the pandemic. Just for okay, a minute. That, that, that's a fair point. And I think he has a beef uh, on the Mueller investigation, impeachment, and uh, so forth, what was done there. In my book, I, I went down to Mar-a-Lago and uh, at the end of last year interviewed President Trump about the impeachment accusations. And I had that transcript where uh, he says he wants the president of Ukraine to talk to the attorney, U.S. Attorney General, about investigating the Bidens. And I asked Trump, I said, do you think this is a good policy for presidents to investigate their political opponent? And he would just say, say, oh no, that's about corruption. I said, no, no, here's, here's the transcript. It says the Bidens. Well, we're just inter, uh, investigating corruption. Now, uh, look, I understand your point. And when I was talking about our obligation to be uh, as neutral as possible, but we have to be as aggressive as possible. And some of the things uh, Trump has done and said, like, I mean, uh, what, if I can ask this, what work do you do? Uh, I am a uh, executive recruiter. Okay. Uh, so you know a lot about business, right? Yes, sir. So what do you think of Trump's action when uh, this this fellow in the Homeland Security put out the report saying the election was uh, the most secure in history and Trump fired him yesterday by tweet? As a matter, what do you think of, about that as... Uh, an executive action. I, I think, you know, that could be argued that that, you know, was a, a weak thing to do. But I, I would draw attention to if if it was one of uh, if it was Eric Trump taking money from Ukraine and China in the way that Hunter Biden did. That's all the media would talk about. It would be the mother of all investigations. They would seek prison sentences for everyone connected. But Biden just got a, you know, no one really touched it, including WAPO. You say you, you doubled up and tripled up, but we don't see that. It looks to me like the worst case of, uh, of collusion or bad behavior by both Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and, and Joe Biden's on video bragging about it. If, if you reverse the roles we see that that would, you know, you people would demand Trump be in prison. And, and well, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure of that. I, but I get your point. And what we need to do in my business is convince you, and we've got to do the work to investigate both sides. And it's something that we can improve on. You're, you're, you're quite right about that. And yeah, I, I think it'd be helpful. Be, I think it'd be helpful if the Washington Post ran an article that detailed exactly what you the, the Post has done in connection with investigating. Because Mark's point is, since there isn't anything, we assume nothing's being done. Whereas if it's doubled and tripled and, and nothing's being found, let's talk about what those efforts are to give everybody more confidence that, in fact, both sides are being investigated fairly. I knew when I would was coming even only virtually to Texas, I would be talking to a bunch of assignment editors <laughs> <laughs> investigate this, investigate that. I, I, it's a legitimate point, but um, what um, Trump, you know, you can't, you can't uh, bleach out what Trump has done on the pandemic. And this, this is affected. I mean, uh, how many people here know somebody who got the disease, uh, somebody who uh, died, passed away? I mean, it, it is uh, 
in, uh, one expert told me the other day that even the millions of people who got it in this country and have recovered are having secondary symptoms and are many of them are impaired. It's going to leave a mark on this country like few other events. And this is where Trump didn't open his mind. And, you know, you can't, if you're the skipper of the Titanic, you can't kind of say, oh, well, except for those that iceberg, everything was great on the cruise. The cruise on the Titanic, at least the captain of the Titanic took action and saved a third of the passengers. They did say Trump failed to do this. And he told me so. And look at the public actions. And I, I don't think people should lose sight of that because soon if Biden becomes president January 20th, it's going to be in his lap and he's got to find some way to deal with this. And who knows? I mean, there are predictions that by the end of the year, uh, there are going to be 20 million cases in the United States. Uh, anyway, so that that's my view, but I'm 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 listening to you and I understand um, the the sense of look Trump got many made many people mad they went off the rails uh, and had emotional reactions to him and that's not the way that's not what reporters should do Bob Woodward has now covered nine presidents for the Washington Post He's regarded by most as the greatest reporter of our time and by many as the greatest reporter of all time. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.